0: Welcome to Immigration 360. In today's episode, we are going to discuss services available for immigrants at the Arizona-Mexico border. Kino Border Initiative is an organization located both in Nogales, Arizona and in Nogales, Sonora, Mexico. With me to discuss Kino Border Initiative, we have Joanna Williams. Joanna Williams has served at the Kino Border Initiative, or KBI, since 2015. She was named the Executive Director this spring, and before that, has worked as the Director of Education and Advocacy for six years. She graduated with a Bachelor's in Science from the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and received a Master's in Public Policy from Arizona State University. Prior to joining KBI, She journeyed with immigrants in a variety of contexts. She volunteered at a shelter in Tierra Blanca, Veracruz, conducted Fulbright research on the reintegration of deported and returned migrants, and worked as a coordinator for the American Civil Liberties Union Border Litigation Project. Welcome, Joanna. It's such a pleasure to have you here.
1: Thanks, I'm glad to be able to participate.
0: So why don't we get started with you telling us a little bit about Kino Border Initiative.
1: Sure. So, Kino Border Initiative, we're a binational organization. It actually means that we exist as a legal entity in Mexico and in the U.S. We have Mexican staff and U.S. staff, but really our mission is, as a single organization is to respond to the realities of migrants in Nogales, Mexico, mm-hmm. and we do that through three different dimensions of work. So, one dimension of that work is humanitarian services. That's responding to folks' basic needs here in, in Nogales, and we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go forward. Uh, The second is education, so that's helping folks in the U.S. and in Mexico understand the realities of migrants in Nogales, Mexico, and and really build compassion and empathy for folks in Nogales. And then the third dimension of work is advocacy, so there we're trying to change policies, laws, policies, practices in the U.S. and in Mexico, Uh, and one piece of our advocacy work is legal assistance, um, because we think that the legal system is important. It's an important tool in order to make progress on these broader advocacy goals. But ultimately, what we're trying to do is holistically respond to the needs and realities of the folks who come to our board, our, our door here in Nogales, Mexico. Whether that's people who've just been deported from the U.S., Central Americans who are arriving to Nogales, thinking about what their next step is, really tailoring those those different sort of services and and being open-minded and how we can be more holistic.
0: Wonderful, so that perfectly leads to my next question. So what services are available at Kino Border Initiative?
1: So in terms of the humanitarian services specifically, um, our most basic services are food, uh, clothing, and medical attention. And we also have a small shelter space, or we actually we have a large shelter space in terms of beds, but we've only been able to shelter a small number of individuals because of the pandemic. Okay. I'm trying to be really careful about those protocols but meals we provide to most everyone who's a migrant in the city and comes and seeks out our services. We also do more specialized support. We have a social worker on staff uh, who can help people identify resources that they might qualify for or find options for housing, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a psychologist as well on staff. So she supports people who have really a large number of the folks that we serve have experienced trauma, Um, but Some of them are are in even more extreme situations and and seek out that psychological support. And for some individuals, we provide support in helping them get uh, jobs or settle in Nogales, Mexico. So whether that's the supplies that they need to start learning how to be a barber or uh, just some soft skills and support in, in doing an interview, those are a couple of the ways that we support people in their own self-sufficiency here in Nogales.
0: Okay, wonderful. So about how many people work at KBI and how many people use services at KBI?
1: So we have 24 people uh, who work at KBI and thus far this year. So as of July 1st of this year, we'd served about 3,600 people. Oh, wow. uh, in general, on an annual basis, we serve between 8,000 and 9,000, depending on the year. And those are some people who just come once and others who stay for a month or two months or or longer who continue to need our support.
0: So you mentioned a little bit about the humanitarian aid component of KBI services. I was wondering if you could describe that a little bit more.
1: So humanitarian aid, the mission there is obviously to meet somebody's needs, but I think it has a much deeper mission which is we want to promote their dignity as human beings Mm -hmm. um so oftentimes folks who've gone through the immigration system have have felt their dignity stripped away at each stage um you know i remember just recently sitting with a woman who had been abused many times since she was a small child Um, so it wasn't just the migration journey itself it was all of that history that she carried of of never feeling valued in her own family or in her own community, and then also being uh, discriminated against and verbally abused by border patrol agents. So she came to us really in a moment of crisis. And so yes, we we met those immediate needs of getting her a plate of food. Um, we we ended up hosting her in our shelter. But what was striking to me is a couple of weeks later, I happened to see her because she was still staying in our shelter at the time, and I almost didn't recognize her. <laughs> She just looks so different because she'd been able to live in that sense of safety and a sense of dignity, have the psychological support, uh, and really recognize her value as a human being, that she is, a, as a woman, as a mom, was valuable and was capable. And that's really our goal with the humanitarian services, is can we put people in a situation where they can remember that they have got value, that they can remember that they're created in beautifully and, mm. and have a, dignity? And there's lots of different pieces then that go into that, but it's, it's not just giving people something because they need it. It's giving something, giving people these services because they deserve it because they're human beings uh, and deserve to be in a place of of safety and deserve to be able to support their kids. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think in a lot of organizations, it's, it's kind of, sometimes you forget about the human component of it and it's just like, food like shelter and of course that's all important but like you said like the value piece you know like kind of self-esteem and like self-empowerment I think that's also really important and that's yeah exactly
1: like the word the word that we use actually we don't use services very often what we use is accompaniment so we really think that we're on the journey with folks (laughs) and we're, we're able to walk alongside them for a few steps and then their journeys continue you know whether they're going south or north but if we can walk alongside them and remind them um, of their human dignity, then that's then we've accomplished our goal.
0: Okay, I like that. So moving on to our next question, what needs have been identified among migrants who go to KBI?
1: So when people arrive at, in the vast majority of situations, they don't want to be in Nogales. So they've either They're either coming to us because they were just sent back from the U.S. They tried to cross the desert. They've been out in in the elements for a week or two weeks, and then they're detained and sent back. Or they're trying to figure out other options, and um, none of that worked out, and they came to us. So there's this immediate crisis need of just the basic services for a day or two, But right now, where we stand at the border, people are also in limbo for a prolonged period of time. So it's not like they have a clear next step. Somebody who's fleeing violence doesn't necessarily get to immediately turn themselves in and seek asylum in the U.S. They exist in this limbo where they're not really long-term residents in Nogales, but they're also not just here for a day or two. And so in that situation, people need some sense of stability. Um, Another service I didn't mentioned, but we work with Save the Children to provide kids programming during the days because these kids have been out of school for a long period of time. Okay. Um, so they need some enrichment, engaging activities, something to structure their day around and and support in surviving this time of limbo, whether that's the um, support in terms of resources or or just a sense of safety and, and protection and, and also awareness of their rights. You know, one of a I've spoken more about a humanitarian services, but we also have advocacy programming, and mm-hmm. that's meant to build, up, build people up so that they know how to defend their own rights. It's been really inspiring to see our leaders, migrant leaders, grow up uh, you know, over the course of, of their time in Nogales and say, no, I do. not only do I know that I have dignity, but I also know that I have rights and I have the power mm-hmm. to make my voice heard. So that is, if we're talking about accompaniment and empowerment, that's really the goal that we're working towards.
0: Okay, gotcha. So you talked a little bit about this limbo period, and just so the listeners know the context, what is the limbo period, and why does that happen?
1: Well, it's a little hard to say at the moment, knowing that this podcast is not going to be published tomorrow. Yeah, because there's a lot of different reasons in, in different moments. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, for the last three almost four years, the U.S. government has been pretty systematically removing the right to seek asylum. So people who are Mm -hmm. fleeing from violence should be able to show up to the U.S. border and say, I'm afraid, and then they enter into the asylum process in the U.S. Starting in 2018, that access to asylum started to be delayed. And then in March of 2020, it was pretty much taken away altogether using the pandemic as a pretext. Mm -hmm. So as of the moment right now when we're recording, somebody can't walk up to the border and ask for asylum. Um, There's only a few people who are getting access to an exception from that um, overall policy of the border closure. Mm -hmm. Um, And most individuals therefore have to wait. So if they're only bringing in, for example, 30 people a day, but 50 people show up, then that starts to create a, a wait where individuals, as of this recording right now, are waiting about two months in order to access the asylum process. Yeah. What I can't predict is whether whether that policy will still be in place um, when this podcast is released. But unfortunately, I think it's pretty likely that people will continue to have to wait in Mexico in order to seek asylum in the United States. Um, and that's the limbo is that they know that they have a chance at access to legal protection, but the u s government isn't respecting that right immediately. Uh, and instead, folks are having to wait on the Mexican side where they, uh, don't have stable housing where they're afraid of of being attacked, uh, where they're just not at home and 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 not in a, a secure situation. Right.
0: Okay. And the policy you're referring to is Title Forty Two.
1: Correct. That's okay. the name of the policy yeah. is Title Forty Two. So that's okay. what we that's what we don't know what the future holds for Title Forty Two in the coming weeks.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay. So going back to the needs that you were talking about that have been identified. What specific health needs have been identified?
1: So there's two. It's a categories of health needs. One is the more acute, um, and then the other is the the more chronic conditions. So acute needs people who are just detained in the desert and are sent back are oftentimes dehydrated. They oftentimes have blisters. They might have heat stroke. So there's a very immediate needs, even broken limbs. So we've sometimes those immediate needs are outside of what we can uh, handle, and we have to refer them to more advanced medical care. Um, We also have individuals who have chronic conditions that because of their situation of migration, it's been harder for them to receive the care that they need. So someone with high blood pressure, with diabetes, it's been difficult for them to monitor that and keep that under control when maybe they can't afford medication or they haven't had a chance to check their blood sugar on a regular basis. Uh, So we try to, to have the resources in place to respond At the very least to those acute needs and then to the extent that we have the ability to to also support individuals with more chronic um, situations and overlaid in all of this, we also have many young children and we have moms pregnant moms Um, so there's definitely a need for prenatal care and an initial uh, pediatric care as well. To make sure that the kids can and and the moms can can thrive or at least at the very least survive and not have any kind of worse health outcomes.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so now shifting gears a little bit and talking about kind of your own experience at KBI, what has your biggest takeaway or takeaways been working at KBI?
1: So I've worked at KBI for about six years, and it's been there's there's a lot to be discouraged about in what's happened in the last six years. Um, and yet at the same time, I'm always struck by this sense of possibility and hopefulness that we're able to live with. And it's not not really through necessarily our own power, um, you know, that we as an organization just decide to be a hopeful organization. But we're working with folks who are extraordinarily persistent um, and who are determined to overcome some of the obstacles they encounter. I think about one mom who was um, spent mo- a large portion of her life in Atlanta, Georgia, and had a couple of kids that were living still in Atlanta, Georgia. She'd have she'd had to come back to Mexico because she had a very sick relative, and then wasn't able to make it back to her young children in, in Atlanta, and. By the time I met her, she'd already t- tried to cross the border five times and had been detained and deported five times. Uh, and she said to me, if they detain me 15 times, I'll cr- cross 16 because it's so important to me to be back with my kids uh, in Atlanta. And so in, this, in the midst of all the obstacles we've encountered over the last many years, there's just no way that we can give up <laughs> because as long as, as long as folks are persistent in wanting the best for their kids and for their families, the very least that we can do is come alongside them and, and provide them a short moment of, of respite or of security.
0: Mm-hmm. That goes back to what you said about the, like, instead of using services, using accompaniment. So thanks mm-hmm. for sharing.
1: Yeah. Excellent. And if I can add one more thought to yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Um, it's seeing the extraordinary potential too of the community. Mm-hmm. So the migrants and their leadership and, and persistence, but also the, just the great generosity of folks in the U S and in Mexico. The other day I met a couple of Honduran men who had didn't have a place to live and somebody in Nogales, Mexico said, Hey, you can sleep in, in my back room for a few nights. Um so it's that immediate generosity as well as people who have been inspired by the visiting and getting to know migrants who now are engaged in advocacy or have really made dramatic life decisions based on their experiences here. It gives me a sense that that, you know, it is possible for us to to work towards another world.
0: Yeah, definitely seeing people who are just as inspired as you are and you're all working together. It's you know the sense of collaboration. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. That's wonderful.
0: So another piece of the podcast is kind of debunking the reasons why someone is migrating and also addressing misconceptions about just the border in general. So based on your experiences, what is something you would like the audience to know about people you have worked with?
1: I think that one misconception that maybe isn't talked about as much um, is this sense that migrants at the border, people at the border, have to either be villains or heroes. Mm-hmm. And the reality of the living and working here day in and day out is that these are ordinary people in really extraordinary circumstances. And so I'm I'm a mom. I have a a, a little baby who's about to turn a year old, and I don't know, you know, what's the perfect way to be a mom but I try my best to do the, do what I think is right for my daughter, and that's very similar to what people at Nogales are are deciding to do. That's the way, that's what's guiding their decisions. You know, a mom from Guatemala will come and say, well, I'm just afraid that my son will be recruited into the gangs if we stay, Mm -hmm. and she also knows that it's not safe to leave, you know, that the journey of migration is exposing her son to other dangers, so there's not a good choice there. There's not, like, you know, this is the perfect way forward, and, and no, no one that we work with is perfect because no human being is perfect. Right. And, and I think that we just need to see more clearly what we have in common um, this common sense of commitment to family, this common hope for safety, this common desire for prosperity. All of those things are part of the human experience. And, and migrants aren't just another group of, of individuals, they're really interconnected and, and part of our community and, and share some of the same hopes, desires, fears that any human being does. So so I think we spend too much time focusing on the border as if it were a distant place or or migrants at the border as if they were extraordinarily different when the reality is that we have so many similarities and, and we can identify deeply with each other.
0: Well said. So we discussed different services that are available at KBI, different needs identified that you've observed over your time working at KBI and just your personal experience in general. Is there anything else you would like to add before we conclude the
1: interview? I've made reference to this briefly, but I I think I can't overemphasize how each of us have some level of personal responsibility and and potential to act and respond. This isn't, again, don't see what's happening at the border as this enormous, insurmountable issue. Mm -hmm. Um, The reality is that each of us have a way that we can become more hospitable that we can build a more hospitable community, nation, world, Um, and whether that's in in being neighborly to the folks who are already in our community, especially immigrants who have already arrived, or whether that's engaging in advocacy and lifting our voices, or even supporting Kino border initiatives work. Uh, There's so many small ways that we can get started in action while we still are thinking about the radical choices. You know, I I didn't wake up one morning and say, oh, I'd like to be executive director of Kino Border Initiative. Mm -hmm. It was making small choices of tutoring people in English and then getting to know my immigrant neighbors in Virginia. All of those things brought me to the position that I'm in today. Mm -hmm. And so I encourage people to think about small action with an eye also towards where can we make radical life decisions of solidarity.
0: Okay, yeah, thank you for adding that. It's important to balance the two, you know, short-term and long-term change. Exactly. So that segues perfectly to our action item. So what action item do you have for the audience today?
1: So we're entering a really important season. We're in budget season in the U.S. So Congress is deciding about different appropriations bills. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so this is a great opportunity for you to reach out to your senators and your um, congressional representatives and say, we want you to invest in a humane immigration system. Mm -hmm. Um, So invest in support for people when they arrive into the community and invest in accountability for the different immigration agencies, whether that's Border Patrol or ICE. Uh, We want to make sure that we're keeping those agencies accountable and having good oversight but also invest in the foreign aid to countries that people are coming from, because there's many individuals here in Nogales who want to be able to stay in their home countries. And we have, the U.S. has had a role in creating those challenges in Central America and elsewhere. And so we need to have a role in undoing some of that harm. So this is a, an important moment where you can talk to your senators and your representatives about where do you want to see us investing funds in to support immigrants and lift up their dignity, and also divesting from programs that are harmful to immigrants, whether that's immigration detention, criminal consequences for people who are just for crossing the border. There's so many different ways that our our immigration policy is built around deterrence and harm and suffering. And so tell your call your senators and representatives and say, I don't want to invest anymore in harming immigrants and migrants. What I want to do is I want to invest in uh, supporting their well-being and dignity and and their ability to to choose to stay in their home community or to have a good life if they do come to the U.S.
0: Wonderful action item. Thank you so much. And that concludes our episode for today. Thank you, Joanna, so much for your time and your knowledge and your wisdom. It's been wonderful having you on this episode today. And thanks to the audience for being here. Thanks for
1: sharing with you.